You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW TalkNet. Hi everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton with our social media update here this week for you. Thanks for joining us. A lot to talk about. I tell you, there's so much going on here at Judicial Watch in our efforts to clean up corruption. Even I sometimes have trouble tracking it all. We have new page struck emails showing corruption and ethical transgressions at the FBI. It's a regular patent place over there. New Clinton email testimony to talk about, at least one of the witnesses in the Clinton email scandal. I have some uh, just astonishing information from that testimony to report to you on. And fantastic news out of California. A Judicial Watch settlement has uh, resulted in a massive move by California to clean up its election rolls. So I'll give you the details there. And a great decision out of the Supreme Court for the First Amendment and religious liberty. And so uh, just interesting, important news from Judicial Watch, information you won't hear about or find out about anywhere else simply because no one but Judicial Watch is doing this type of investigative and litigation, investigative work and litigation to uncover and educate you about the government corruption that is infecting uh, this fair city here in Washington, D.C. Not Congress, not the executive branch, uh, and frankly, we are able to use the law against uh, the executive branch uh, and with the help of the judiciary at times uh, to get information that no one else is able to get, especially on the deep state efforts uh, to undo the presidential election, the coup cabal against President Trump. And to that end, we have new information that we've released uh, as a result of a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. The Freedom of Information Act is the federal transparency law that allows you and groups like Judicial Watch access to decision uh, government documents about its activities. It allows you to find out what the government's up to. And in the case of the coup cabal, there's a lot to find out about because I think it evidences uh, criminal activity. The new emails are from uh, Pay uh, Lisa Page and Peter Strzok, the two senior or former top senior FBI officials who are having an affair, uh, but also were uh, anti-Trumpers and pro-Hillary Clinton. Uh, at the time, they were running both the Clinton email investigation, if you want to even call it that, and the, uh, uh, the Russiagate uh, targeting of President Trump. In fact, Strzok and Page were removed from the investigation by Robert Mueller in a secret move that wasn't told uh, that no one found out about till four months later because of text messages that the inspector general allegedly found uh, detailing his uh, political bias and uh, Page's political bias and obviously their improper relationship. Uh, pay, you may remember those text messages where Page talks, uh, Strzok talks about having an insurance policy if President Trump's elected uh, and basically hating Trump voters and uh, just showing inappropriate animus in a way that suggests that both investigations were wired for to protect Hillary and target uh, Donald Trump. So we have new emails. Uh, so we've asked for all the communications between these two very special people, Lisa Page and uh, Peter Strzok. We asked and were denied, uh, as per usual, from the uh, stonewalling FBI. So we sued the Justice Department in January. Eight of 2018. So this is about a year and a half ago. And they found about 13,000 pages in response to our FOIA request 
for all the communications between Strzok and Page. And they've only been giving us essentially emails. The text messages, I'll get into the text messages later, the FBI doesn't believe that text messages are subject to FOIA. Can you believe that? So they want to hide the text messages of Page, Strzok, Andrew McCabe, James Comey, you name it. And we're fighting that out separately. Well, this will come up in this case. It's not ripe yet for this case, I don't think. But we're fighting it in another case where the FBI refuses to look at text messages under the Freedom of Information Act. Well, anyway, we're getting emails in the least, and the emails show a few things. That when uh, James Comey testified to Congress about the Wiener Laptop Clinton emails, remember Yuma Abedin had sent or had all of the Clinton emails, most of them, on uh, her husband, then husband, Anthony Weiner's laptop. Anthony Weiner went to jail for a sex crime. So and that included classified information. How do we know that? Because Judicial Watch received those documents showing there was classified material on Anthony Weiner's laptop from Hillary Clinton's email server. More evidence of her criminal misconduct, in my view. Uh, so um, Comey testified in May of 2017 that Yuma Abedin's uh, had made a regular practice of forwarding hundreds of th and thousands, hundreds of thousands really, of Clinton's messages to her husband, some of which contained classified information. Well, the FBI was horrified at that. And so the emails show that they were desperate to try to correct that, or frankly, just muddy the record there. So uh, the documents show there were all the top officials of the FBI were involved in drafting a letter to the Congress that misleadingly suggested that his original testimony was wrong, when in fact it probably wasn't, and said, well, no, 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 we found 49,000 emails. So uh, it's interesting to see that anything that makes Hillary Clinton look bad, the FBI goes crazy over. That's what these emails show. The emails also show the anti-Trump collusion between the New York Times and the FBI. Normally when you have a reporter or reporters doing reports or reporting on uh, investigations or uh, agency activity, they seek responses. They say, we're doing this, we found out this, do you have an official response? But if you're friends with the uh, people running the agency, you give them a heads up. And this is what the email shows, that they gave, the New York Times gave a heads up to the FBI about a story, and this is the uh, email. It was a March 24th, 2017 email from New York Times reporter Michael Schmidt to the FBI PR person, Michael Cortan. Schmidt offers the FBI information, and I'll, write, I'll read it. He writes, he asks, I'll just read the email. You can figure out, you'll see what I mean. Uh, he writes, Mike writes, Mike, wanted to flag you on something. Three of my colleagues are working on a story about the Russia investigation. They're told that Jared Kushner is among the individuals who the FBI is scrutinizing for the meetings with Russians. My colleagues were told that Ambassador Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, after meeting Kushner and General Flynn in early December at Trump Tower, set up a meeting with Kushner and a Russia banker. Kushner ultimately met with the Russia banker. The banker worked for Alpha Bank. Thanks, Mike. I don't know if that story turned out to be completely accurate or not, but does that sound like someone seeking a response? No. That's a heads up. We've got this story you'll be interested in. It shows, in my view, collusion. Indeed, the president 
seeing discussions of this on Fox News. Our friend uh, Molly Hemingway was talking about it on Tucker Carlson. I talked about it on uh, uh, Sean Hannity this week. Uh, it was talked about on Fox and Friends. The president said, what's going on here? Is it even legal what's going on? I don't know if it's legal or not, but it certainly is shady. You've got the FBI working in collusion with the New York Times on an anti-Trump story. Or if I reverse that, the New York Times working with the FBI on an anti-Trump story. Not because they needed information from the FBI, they were conveying information to the FBI. And another email exchange between Strzok Page and other FBI officials whose names are redacted for whatever meeting, whatever reason, with this, and the subject line is NYT last shot. The FBI appears to be given a preview of an upcoming article there, excuse me, in the New York Times. Peter, Lisa, the editing is nearing completion and we have one last shot to hear what the end result is. Do you have time later today or tomorrow? That is convenient for a listening session, likely by phone in Mike's office. So they were giving a special preview by the New York Times. Again, if that doesn't show something other than the journalism uh, uh, independence, I don't know what does. It shows they're working hand in glove on this material. Now, I may be naive, and that goes on all the time, but I don't think it does. I don't think it does. There's more, and this is this is kind of this is kind of, in some ways, silly, embarrassing, sad, a little humorous in some ways. So, Judicial Watch was the first to uncover, through separate Freedom of Information Act litigation, that there was a grand jury looking at the Clinton email issue. Now, the grand jury wasn't a serious, they weren't seriously, in my view, using the grand jury because the grand jury was essentially being used, it looks like, to get documents. They needed the power of a grand jury to compel production of documents. And, and I don't think there was any witness testimony before the grand jury. But no one had known there was a grand jury. And of course, if there was a grand jury and it had been reported at the time, it would have been bad news for Hillary Clinton's campaign, which is why the government never told us about it. So, of course, that was a pro-Clinton operation at the DOJ and the FBI at the time. So Page and Strzok, so they get word of this of a, through a news story, and Page and Strzok are communicating and sending emails around and about about this, and someone gets offended about who the email was sent to. And remember, they're paramours, to put it charitably. Page email struck. Are you serious, dude? I'm, I sent to blank. So I've committed some grave sin for not including you on this. My apologies, DAD struck director, uh, deputy assistant director struck, sir. Struck emails page. You know what? Take a step back and look at this and stop with the DAD bull sugar. That's not the point you know it. Page email struck. I think you think you should take your own advice. I didn't look to see who was on the distribution when I sent it. Sorry, that's on me, but this is distinctly not a big deal. And I definitely didn't err in not including you on a two-line email to blank. Get a grip. Now, does that sound like a professional relationship that you want your FBI or professional behavior you want your top senior FBI agents to be engaging in? When I said at the top of this 
report about Peyton Place, I, look, I'm too old to have watched Peyton Place, but I know generally it's a soap opera over there. So you've got this ethical morass at the FBI that these emails demonstrate. And there's more emails where Strzok is yelling about people trying to bypass him. Uh, I'm not going to, I won't bother you with those emails. But the emails show the Obama FBI, then run by Comey, to be both a mess, both a mess, excuse me, to be a mess both professionally and ethically. And of course, the best example of this mess is this slubber spat created by a judicial watch disclosure of all things. But the news, and you know, and I. Why were these, and, and you know, and this goes to another ethics issue. The relationship was wrong, obviously, on a moral level between Strzok and Page, but it was also a problem in terms of the investigations. Because when Page was a top lawyer in the FBI, advising Andrew McCabe, the number two at the FBI, so a senior person, and Peter Strzok was the lead investigator on these two major issues. So if you want a lawyer to provide advice to you on someone else's behavior and provide advice to them on what they should be doing investigatively, you want the lawyer to be disinterested. Just the facts, what's the law, what's the best interest of the agency, uh, what's ethical, and you know, all the sorts of things you want a good lawyer uh, to be making judgments on. But when the lawyer and one of the folks that she's working with in this sensitive position have this personal relationship that no one knows about, an inappropriate one that they obviously don't want anyone to know about, that throws that whole thing. Uh, it, 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 it's a major ethical distraction. And uh, it calls into question the decision making that was taking place and the advice and counsel Lisa Page was given, what Strzok was able to do as a result of this inappropriate relationship. and what information he may have been getting and receiving and vice versa, all sorts of ethical issues. And I don't know if the IG is looking at that, but someone needs to. It's infected both the Clinton email investigations, I know the political side of it, you know, the corruption on the political side, it certainly infected the targeting of Trump, this illicit relationship. So I, I think that's something worth considering. Uh, but uh, we're getting these emails. As I said, there are 13,000 pages that are being reviewed, and we're getting them intermittently. We're going get to get them through next year. And uh, this is material that if Congress has, they haven't released it. It's only being released to Judicial Watch in a piecemeal fashion. They're releasing it slowly. 13,000 pages of documents, that could have been released to us. We sued for them in January of 2018. To be fair, maybe four months, they could have given them to us a year ago. But instead, they're giving us, to, they're giving us the documents in dribs and drabs. As I said, this, this, this group of documents, I think, had 345 pages. So presuming there are monthly productions, the, usually the typical productions, 500 pages. Those of you who are in the legal community, uh, those of you who review documents, you know you could probably do 500 pages in an afternoon in terms of a document review. And yes, and that means 
evaluating documents to make sure that nothing improper is being disclosed to the recipient. Because as a FOIA uh, recipient, we can't get everything we want. Sometimes there are national security redactions, personal privacy redactions. We don't want someone's social security number. We don't want material that's not related to our request. It might be interesting, but we don't want it, and we understand why it might be withheld. So even doing all of that sort of work, no reason for this. And it just shows you that this is why it's important to have a group like Judicial Watch who is focused on getting the truth out and is unwilling to stop uh, doing this work because of delay. And I know the delay seems long to you, and you know we want it to move more quickly, uh, but uh, it's only a delay. It doesn't stop the truth ultimately from coming out, or at least some of the truth from coming out. Uh, and, and it's only because that we're willing to go to court and stick around and push and push in court to get this information does it ever see the light of day. I mean, the media is working with the FBI this is, this is stuff that we want, and they're working in hand in glove with the FBI. And Congress, to a degree it gets documents, it's always a political fight, so that process is screwed up. I mean, the Republican-controlled Congress couldn't get documents from the Republican-controlled Justice Department. And certainly the Democrats running the House has zero interest in exposing their corruption from when they ran the FBI and Justice Department under Obama. So it's up to Judicial Watch to, judicial watch to get the truth out, and that's what we're doing. Uh, and along those lines, you know, it's interesting. I made this point, forgive me if I made it here previously, but it's bear, it bears repeating. We are in the place we are in with the coup cabal, the coup, and the abuses targeting President Trump, largely because of one person, Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton's campaign paid for this uh, smear operation against Trump using Russia intel through Fusion GPS, and that dossier that was created by Christopher Steele using, again, Russia intel was uh, laundered through the FBI and DOJ to generate spying operations on Trump, all sorts of other illicit activities targeting him, ultimately led to the special counsel. So no dossier, no, no Hillary Clinton payment, no dossier, no special counsel, no coup cabal, no threats of impeachment, no continued outrageous harassment from Congress, which continues this week. Hope Hicks was harassed this week. The judiciary called her in and asked her questions they know they don't have the right to answers to. You know, I, you know, I know, just because the Trump administration objects to giving information, it doesn't mean they're always right. But in this case, it's pretty clear. The president's close advisors, uh, the president has executive privilege there, and Congress can't burst through it. Yet they hauled Hope Hicks in and asked her a question after question that they knew was covered by privilege. And as I pointed out last week, uh, Don, um, the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., was hauled in before the Intelligence Committee, uh, Committee of the Senate, which is nominally controlled by uh, Republicans, but is practically controlled by Democrats. So he's hauled in 
to answer questions raised by who? Michael Cohen, the admitted liar who's now in jail. It's abuse after abuse. And it all began with the Clinton campaign operation trying to create a false narrative during the campaign and after the camp, after the campaign ended, that the Russians were uh, conspiring with Donald Trump. It was a hoax, it was a smear, it was defamation. So why do I say all that? Because I want you to remember that the next time you hear, well, why are you talking about Hillary Clinton? She's no longer in office. Hillary Clinton is, might as well be Speaker of the House, practically speaking, because all the investigations are a result of her campaign operation pushing the Russia hoax. And her friends in the Democratic Party are following up with this impeachment, not impeachment, harassment of the House by the House of the Trump team. So yes, it's important that she be held accountable. And of course, Judicial Watch exposed the Clinton email scandal. We found the emails. And one of the key cases that resulted in the disclosure of these emails was the Judicial Watch Freedom of Information Act request and lawsuit about Benghazi. And I just want to remind you of the, those circumstances. We had found the smoking gun in a separate lawsuit about, uh, remember they lied, uh, Susan Rice lied repeatedly. This is before she was unmasking people improperly, it looks like. She lied repeatedly as UN ambassador for Obama on five talk shows about the Benghazi attack, falsely attributing it to a video when it was a terrorist attack. That was designed to take political heat over the president who didn't want the embarrassment of an al-Qaeda attack or terrorist attack that resulted in the death of an ambassador a few months before the election. I don't know about you, I consider it a big deal when the president and all of his men and women lie about a terrorist attack that results in four Americans dying. So we were committed to figuring out what went on there and trying to get accountability. And sure enough, we received documents from the uh, administration after suing that Congress couldn't get, the media didn't really want to get, that showed it was the White House who was pushing out this big lie about the video made them do it. Not the intelligence community, it was out of the White House. And as a result of that, the select committee was formed by John Boehner, the then speaker. Trey Gowdy had the select committee. But we noticed in that lawsuit there were no Clinton emails. So we asked again sent another request and we sued, of course, but they didn't give us an answer. And they still didn't give us any Clinton emails. So our lawyer in the case, Ramona Kotka, said, tell us what's going on. Where did you look? And that forced them to, to fess up to the court initially. We gave Judicial Watch everything except some other documents. And then it's leaked a few weeks later, oh wait, to the New York Times, that there were Clinton emails out there. There was this server out there. So we forced that disclosure. And the judge in that case, Royce Lamberth, wants answers because they were trying to get us to shut the case down 
without telling us there were Clinton emails. So late last year, he authorized discovery into, were they trying to uh, mislead the court? Was Hillary Clinton trying to avoid FOIA? And where are her other emails? Are there other emails to be found and searched as the law requires? And he also wants to know if Benghazi's tied to this effort to cover up the emails. Were they nervous about that? And he granted us discovery. We just finished up the depositions of almost 12 witnesses. I think it's 12. Our team of lawyers, Ramona Coca leading the team at this time, has been taking deposition after deposition of top State Department officials, former Clinton aides, people close to Hillary Clinton, including her lawyer. As the Justice Department opposes us at every step, and the State Department. I mean, I think highly of Attorney General Barr, but the Justice Department involved in this, they, they, they're trying to curtail our discovery. They were trying to stop us at every step, and they still are. So that's a long background for the news because we've gotten the testimony, as I say, and we're, we're evaluating the testimony. I'd show you the videos of the depositions, but the Justice Department and the State Department didn't want that to happen, and unfortunately the court agreed, so we just have the transcripts. And one of the witnesses we uh, had testify is uh, Justin Cooper. And Justin Cooper at the time was a Clinton Foundation employee, and he helped set up the system. And uh, so he uh, worked for the, both Bill Clinton and the Foundation, and he worked on the system with uh, Brian Pagliano, who was a State Department employee who worked on the side, supposedly, for Hillary Clinton on this email issue. Pagliano's taken the Fifth Amendment. So Cooper came in and was deposed by us. And you know, it's interesting. He comes in and he says, well, who, you know, did you talk to the, basically Clinton world before this deposition? And who did he talk to? Cheryl Mills, the week before. Who was Cheryl Mills, you may ask? Cheryl Mills was Hillary Clinton's number two at the State Department, I think her chief of staff. Goes back all the way to the Clinton White House with her, very close. She knew about the Clinton email setup. And Judge Lambert, who I say gave us the, the discovery, criticized the DOJ. I'm gonna, I want to read you at length what he thought about Cheryl Mills. Judge Lambert, late last year, criticized the DOJ saying he was dumbfounded by the Inspector General report, remember the big IG report about some of the Clinton email issues, revealing that Mills had been given immunity and was allowed to accompany Clinton to her FBI interview. Remember there was a controversy, why was, Hillary, why was Cheryl Mills, a witness, allowed to come into the interview as Hillary Clinton's lawyer? And this is what Judge Lambert said at the hearing. I remember it. I was there at the hearing. I did print out and read that 500-page report when I got it, and I, actually, I was actually dumbfounded when found out in reading that report that Cheryl Mills had been given immunity because I had myself found that Cheryl Mills had committed perjury and lied under oath in a published opinion I had issued in a Judicial Watch case where I found her unworthy of belief, and I was quite shocked to find out 
She had been given immunity in by the Justice Department in the Hillary Clinton email case. So I did not know that until I read the IG report and learned that and she had accompanied the secretary to the interview. And the ruling he's referencing is another judicial watch lawsuit that included Hillary Clinton as a defendant over the FBI files misuse. Remember Filegate? Well, there was a Clinton email issue then too because the Clinton White House wasn't capturing all the emails it should have captured for searches, and they didn't tell anyone about it. So you had special counsels and Judicial Watch and Congress asking the White House for emails, and they're saying, oh, we're searching. But they didn't tell anyone they weren't searching entire sets of emails. And they knew it, and they withheld it. And Lambert, after we took a lot of time examining this issue in his court, said that Mills participated, and Mills was a White House counsel at the time, White House lawyer, called Mills' participation in the matter, quote, loathsome. He further stated Mills was responsible for the most critical error made in this entire fiasco. Mills' actions were totally inadequate to address the problem. This is about emails. And you're telling me that Cheryl Mills and Hillary Clinton didn't know about the impact of her email? Bathroom server, whatever you want to call it? So Justin Cooper, by the way, the person who's testifying, he's the one who talked about the hammers. Hammering, the, hammering Hillary Clinton's personal devices. And Cooper also contradicted Yuma Abedin. Abedin testified to us in another case on the Clinton email issue. Abedin told us, and she was, uh, a, she was the, a deputy at the State Department, very close to Hillary Clinton as well. I told you about the Wiener laptop emails. Her husband had her, uh, she was one of the only people on the Clinton email server. It was her, as best we can tell, Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton. So there were only three people they tell us were on the server. When Cooper was asked who approached him about creating the ClintonEmail.com account, Cooper answered, it would have been a discussion with Yuma Abedin. Cooper also testified that Abedin was his primary contact regarding the choice of the domain name that was registered, I believe, in January 2009. Um, Cooper's testimony is at odds with her, Abedin's testimony to Judicial Watch where she said that she became aware of the server through reading in some news articles you know, shortly before her testimony, when it was publicly discussed. Cooper said she, he couldn't recall whether Clinton had any input on the creation of the domain name. Now, he also testified there were two servers. There was the Apple server, and then they moved material off the Apple server to what is called the Pagliano server. He doesn't remember whether that Apple server had all the material wiped from it. Isn't that interesting? And when Cooper was asked to testify about how many email accounts he created, for Clinton, he said, to the best of my recollection, two or three. And guess what? His legal bills were paid by Hillary Clinton and, T and Bill Clinton because he testified to Congress. 
and negotiated a settlement where the Clintons paid his legal bills. And someone told him it was a bad idea. We didn't know who it was that Hillary Clinton be part of this server that was being set up. And you know who told him it was a bad idea? Because we found it out in the testimony. It was in his 302 that he talked to someone about it, but the FBI wouldn't give us the name. Well, he said it was Doug Band, who was close to, Hillary, to Clinton, the Clinton Foundation official, and an advisor to Bill Clinton, and a business partner at one point. So Doug Band, who, by the way, was the go-between between the Clinton Foundation and um, the State Department during Clinton's tenure in that play-to-play -play operation, where Clinton Foundation donors and supporters were getting special favors from the State Department. Doug Band was sending all the emails to Yuma Avedin, who was on the system. And it helps explain why Hillary Clinton, he didn't want Hillary Clinton on that system, because he knew what he was doing because they started the pay-to-play operation almost immediately upon her becoming Secretary of State. So all of this is, is informative. It highlights the need for further investigation by prosecutors, frankly. Uh, but uh, again, it's Judicial Watch who's doing this because a federal court wants answers on this. So the next time you hear someone say, why, is that, why are you still concerned about Hillary Clinton? Well, we're concerned because we're judicial watching, we know what she did, and we want as much accountability as we can. But remember, a federal court judge shares our concerns. So we have more testimony to be coming out that I will be reporting to you both here and they'll be available online. You can read all the deposition transcripts we've certainly, uh, we've released thus far. We've had other testimony we've released. For instance, the top security official at the State Department told Hillary Clinton twice, watch it about your use of uh, uh, BlackBerry and personal email accounts. So she was warned. Testimony through Judicial Watch. So there's a lot of good stuff online, and I'll report to you about other material as we go through it and get it out to you so the American people and you uh, can find out more about what went on that they won't find out because of the sham investigation by the Comey FBI and Lynch DOJ and Obama gang. And Congress isn't doing anything. It's only Judicial Watch again. Great news. More great news. California, California has begun a massive program to clean up its voter rolls thanks to a Judicial Watch legal settlement. And I've told you about this process before, the, uh, or about this lawsuit before. We had sued Los Angeles County and the state of California on our behalf and um, some citizens of California and a great group in California called the Election Integrity Project of California that has long been involved in monitoring California voter rolls. You know, in California, the federal, well, just generally speaking, federal law requires states to take reasonable steps to clean up the rolls. And Judicial Watch has been in the forefront in becoming the first private entities ever to sue under this law to enforce that law. We had successful settlements in Ohio, in Kentucky, there's a consent decree. Indiana, they changed their behavior thanks to our lawsuit. And in California, we found there were many counties, like in Los Angeles, that had more people on their rolls than were living there and eligible to vote. That's a pretty good indication. Don't you think that they're not taking reasonable steps to clean up the rolls? And California is an important state. Los Angeles has over 10 million residents alone, 10 million. 
which is more than the populations of 41 of the 50 states. It'd be a top 10 state if it were just Los Angeles County. It's that big. And they had over 20% extra name. So if they had 20% more names on the rolls than were eligible to vote. And nationally, there are three and a half million names. And in one county in California, of those three and a half, there are one and a half million extra names, so-called inactive voters, people who should really be removed from the rolls. And California had enforced that law, as I say, for over 20 years. So Judicial Watch sued, and California saw the writing on the wall. Supreme Court in uh, last year upheld Judicial Watch's settlement in Ohio, saying the state, st states needed to do certain things to clean up the rolls that were required. So they settled with us. The Secretary of State did in Los Angeles County. And they committed to taking steps to remove up to one and a half million inactive voters from the rolls. Isn't that incredible? Now why is this important in terms of election integrity? Because dirty voting rolls can mean dirty elections. If you've got this big pool of quote inactive voters, if someone wants to vote illegally, there's a big list they can choose from, especially in a state like California, which has virtually no voter ID requirement. So cleaning up those names from the rolls is essential to good governance and clean elections. So we had the settlement agreement, which we announced earlier this year, and California and Los Angeles County almost immediately became, uh, uh, began complying. In March, they mailed one and a half million names on this inactive voter list. One and a half million. I think it was 1.51 million in just one mailing. And so what happens if, if, if those folks don't reply or otherwise vote in the next two federal elections, which means 2020 and 2022, their names will be removed. And they could be removed sooner if people start calling LA County or communicating with them or they find out people are dead. So it will lead to the immediate removal and cleanup of California's or Los Angeles County's election rolls. It's great news. And it's obviously a model for other states and other counties in California which have similar problems like San Diego County to get on the ball and begin cleaning it up. This problem's taken 20 years to get to where it is it's going to take a few years to clean up the list, but everyone's on notice that we need to be cleaning up the rolls. And it's thanks to Judicial Watch, not the Justice Department, not Congress, not the media. It's thanks to Judicial Watch. Now, I thought the mailing was to 1.5 million. You know, they did that one mailing. And it turns out they did other mailings as well. They reported to us just the other day. So the number, of non, the number of inactive people they're contacting in these mailings is now 1.59 million. The number we've been using, we thought it was going to be up to 1.56 million names that have been, would be possibly removed. Now it's up to 1.59 million, approaching 1.6 million. So the number is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And as importantly, part of the settlement agreement was the Secretary of State 
agreed to update the state's online manual in order, this is the Voting Registration Act manual, in order to make clear that ineligible names must be removed and to notify each California county that they're obliged to do this. So every California county has been now notified by the Secretary of State that they need to start cleanups. Including as they, the Secretary of State will be sending written advisories to all counties, he's already done it supposedly, to all county clerks, registers of voters in California stating that current federal law requires the cancellation of a registrant who has failed to respond to an official notice, this is the mailing I'm talking about, or similar mailings, and who then fails to vote, offers to vote, correct the register's record, or quote, otherwise have their eligibility to vote confirmed for a period of time, including the next two general federal elections. They haven't been doing this for almost 20 years, and now they're doing it. California voting rolls are now going to be cleaner, thanks to this Judicial Watch federal lawsuit. So it's great news, just great news. And I'll leave with, uh, uh, there's some other great news. There was this big case out of Supreme Court. The decision was announced today, uh, this week on the Blandisburg Memorial Cross. That cross has been up for decades. It's been around forever. It's been in private property. Uh, I think it's a World War I memorial. And Blandisburg, Maryland is just outside the District of Columbia. And uh, it was on private property. Uh, the government ended up taking it up. And it's just been a landmark around here forever. Uh, and the leftists, anti-religion uh, types, uh, sued to destroy it, have it removed. Or let me tell you just how convoluted the court process got. You had at least in the court in the lower courts, which ultimately, um, which initially agreed with the plaintiffs to have the cross removed. One of the judges suggested that maybe they can make it compliant with the First Amendment. It's a giant cross. We have pictures of it online. By taking the arm, by chopping the arms off. Can you imagine that a federal court judge? Uh, or uh, that the state of law on the First Amendment would be uh, allow a, a federal court judge at the appellate level to suggest tearing the arms off of a cross to our war dead? Well, thankfully, the Supreme Court ruled that the cross can stand up, can stay. It should remain standing. It should stand up. It's already standing. You know, military sacrifice is made possible the freedoms we are fighting about. And the idea that we can't put crosses up to honor our war dead and those who have sacrificed for our country is so at odds with the Founding Fathers' vision. I don't know, I don't, I don't know what to say to those who think otherwise. Now, the court decision wasn't, was okay. It wasn't the best in the world because there are all these convoluted tests the court has to figure out whether a, a cross is, or another religious symbol violates the establishment cross, uh, the establishment clause. I mean, this is basically what happens. Uh, this is what the, I think the Constitution says. This is what the history is. When our country was founded, our Constitution was set up, 
States had official religions. And the First Amendment is designed to prevent the federal government from telling states not to do that. And that's been transmogrified by the Supreme Court and activists, and the history has been rewritten to suggest that the Establishment Clause, uh, clause prevents any government recognition of religion, and it's simply not the case. Now, unfortunately, there's no majority on the court for that view. There are a few uh, members of the court, like Justice Thomas and others, who kind of explain that. And I encourage you to read the full decision. I mean, the thinking of the, the kind of the core decision here is that um, because it's been up so long, it can stay up. I'll take the victory any, we can, any way we can, but I, you know, this originalist interpretation really needs to come in because it's just going to invite more and more litigation on this issue because the court is afraid to state the truth here. And I'll say one other thing. There were two justices who opposed this, Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg. So when they talk about political extremism and ideological extremism, and being outside the mainstream. Those are two Supreme Court justices who wanted to tear down a cross to our nation's honored dead, and whose decision, in my view, would have resulted in going and taking down every cross in Arlington Cemetery. Then that's how radical this approach is. So thankfully, the Lord gave a majority of the judges the wisdom and discernment to come up with the right decision here. And we were honored to participate in the case because we filed an amicus brief advocating that the memorial clause is not a violation of the Establishment Clause. So uh, some good news. So I'll end it with that. Have a wonderful weekend. I want you to go to our website go to our YouTube channel, go to our Twitter channel, go to our Instagram account, and if you're not following us, you should be. And even if you don't want to follow us, you should. Let's say you're not on Instagram. Go on Instagram, create an account, start following us. Get the word out. I'm asking you to be active on social media, which is a key area to getting the word out and educating your fellow Americans, your friends, your colleagues. And the only way you can do that is by participating. And I know the social media giants, they don't like conservatives. But we can't be run out of town, and we can't be run out of Dodge. So I want you to support Judicial Watch by being active online and spreading the word about our good work and our educational activities about what the government's up to. So with that, thank you, and have a wonderful weekend. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate. <laughs>